it feels to me like we are touching the soul of the one another community. This idea of getting underneath the weight of somebody else's life, not just standing aside them and giving orders, advice, instruction, and then going back to our own, but actually getting underneath the weight of someone else's life, things they deserve and don't deserve but still carry, and using every gift that we have for the good of the whole rather than for ourselves seems to me to be at the heart, the very core of the one another community. It might be a shorthand way to say, love one another. One day a man died and found himself in a very beautiful place. He was surrounded by every imaginable form of comfort. Every desire, every whim, every impulse was immediately satisfied. He looked around and there were people frolicking and jousting and shouting orders. Next to him was a white-jacketed man waiting to take his. Said the butler to the man, you can have anything you want in this place. Dream it up. Any pleasure, any food, any person, any form of entertainment, all yours, just ask. So the man took advantage of this. He tasted every imaginable pleasure, things that he only dreamed of while being on the earth. And about the third day, he got tired of it. He decided to do something else. So he called the butler to his side and he said, I'm getting kind of bored. I think I need a deadline. I, I need uh, someone to help. I need someone to need me. And the servant said to him, no, sir, I'm sorry. He said, uh, here in this place, you cannot serve others. You can only be served. What, said the man? What kind of a place is this? I might as well be in hell, said the butler. But sir, where did you think you were? One of the ways that we show Jesus we love him is to serve other people. So it's pretty strange when Christians think of heaven as a place of ultimate rest, all the while sitting in the backyard of one who said of himself, the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If hell is a place where you cannot serve, then heaven might be a place where you can. If hell is a place where each person is to themselves the center of their attention, then heaven must be a place where others are the center of your attention. Hmm? I'll make it different. 
If hell is a large room where everyone is taking selfies, heaven might be a place where everyone is taking otheries. If hell is the place where the most common used word in the English language is I and me, well, then you're already in hell. And heaven must be a place where you and us are the most common words. It was heaven that Paul had in mind when he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but let every one of you look on to the interests of others, not your soul, not your own. Looking not onto the interests of self, but only onto the interests of others. He must have had heaven in mind. From what I can tell, there was an ongoing debate with uh, the disciples over who was the greatest. And if I'm reading the Gospels right, if I'm not, you'll tell me right afterwards. There were at least three instances in which this occurred, and these are not the same instances. In each instance, it was framed a little differently, and in each instance, not only the context, but the answer was different. The first time was in Matthew chapter 18, where it came in the form of a question. Jesus, which one of us is the greatest? The answer came in the form of a child. Jesus brought a child in and stood the child among them and said, Unless you change, literally, unless you are transformed inside and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, they should have heard it, but they didn't. The second time it happened was in Mark chapter 10. And this time it came in the form of a request. James and John come alongside Jesus And they said to him, Jesus, grant that one of us will sit on your right and the other on your left. These are positions of authority and power. When you enter your glory, this time the answer came in the form of a cup. Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup of my suffering? (laughs) And they said blindly, sure. Jesus went on to say, the person who is the greatest among you will be servant of all. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The third time that they had this argument, it came in the form of an argument. You could sense that the tensions between the disciples arguing for about three years over which of them was the greatest was getting more and more heated. And this time it erupted in all places in the center of communion. Luke 22 says it was while Jesus was sitting at the table 
serving the cup to his disciples, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Have you no sense? Argue in the atrium. Argue in your pews. (laughs) Don't come to the table and in front of communion, argue which one of you is the greatest because you're also arguing which of you is the least. No one's going to take that laying down. And this time, the answer came in a strange act that is repeated or recorded in no other gospel but John. According to some, there is no act like this anywhere in ancient literature. This time, the answer comes in the form of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. If I put Luke chapter 22 and John chapter 13 together, both of them speak of the Last Supper. But in John, there is an incident that is not anywhere else in the Gospels. John remembers that just before he served them that last meal, he uh, gathered his 12 disciples in an intimate little room And while the meal was being served, Jesus got up from the table and he went around and he started washing the disciples' feet. By the time he got to Peter, Peter'd had enough. Love this guy because he always says what everyone else in the room is thinking but doesn't have the audacity to say. He gets to Peter and Peter says, wait, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus says, what I'm about to do, you can't understand. But believe me, one day you'll get it. Peter objects. He says, no, Lord, you will never Wash my feet. Jesus says encrypted things when he says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. That's union language. Peter, unless I wash your feet, you cannot be united with me. That's some of the strongest language in the New Testament. Those of you who read John and love it, remember he said, unless a person is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Later he said, unless somebody eats my flesh and drinks my blood, they have no life in them. Later he said, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will never see the kingdom of God. Later he said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. This is either or language. And so when he says to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part inside of me. 
It's either or. This isn't some luxury that must be added to Peter's life. It is as essential as being born again. It's as sacred as communion. Peter detects this immediately. He knows that Jesus has raised the stakes, and so he submits and says, well, then, Lord, not, not only my feet, but everything. Wash all of me. Typical Peter. Jesus says, no, nah, you're all clean. Well, everybody but one of you. In the 1930s, there was a fellow by the name of Robert Greenleaf who read John chapter 13. He also read other things like a book called Journey to the East by Hermann Hesse. And he came away with a brand new concept and this was it. Greenleaf's idea was that America was being dominated by large institutions. Big businesses, big churches, big universities, big unions. And that these institutions were not serving us well in America and something else was needed. Greenleaf argued that the flaw in every one of these institutions was that their view of leadership was fundamentally flawed. Leaders were thinking of themselves as something over the union or church or institution. They did not see themselves as in it or under it. And he decided a new mentality should be formed. He coined the phrase in the 1930s, servant leader. Have you heard that word? Google it and there's over 52 million hits. The term has become so popular today that you probably can't get hired if you don't say somewhere in the interview, well, I consider myself a servant leader. <laughs> the problem is that when you say it, nobody knows what you mean because everybody says it. So I went back a few years ago and started reading Greenleaf, blew my mind. It was a novel concept. He said, a servant leader is a person who puts the other person's highest priority needs as their first priority. He didn't say it was one of the things that they do. He says, my first priority is your first priority. That's the servant leader. He said, it's a person in whose presence other people's lives always get better. When they're around them, they get healthier and wiser and freer and more autonomous, and they become more likely themselves to be servant leaders. I won't ask, but how many of you... Uh, uh, in your mind right now would say, oh, I think I'm pretty close to that. I like to think I am. Sounds boisterous to say it, doesn't it? I like to think that um, the way that I lead is to dispense power. I try conscientiously to 
um, uh, give glory and freedom to other people. I try to elevate other people. I try to get any obstacle out of the way so they can get to the front. And when they are, I have learned to allow people not only to please me, but to impress me. I've learned over time that people want to impress you. They don't want your affirmation. They want to know that they can do something that you can't do. And they can do it better. And they want you to be able to stand back and say, I don't know how you do it. I have conscientiously tried to put these principles into place. And so I wrote this sermon this week intending only to underscore these principles. That was a mistake. Because I began to reread John chapter 13 and I noticed that there were other principles I was missing. I was so blind in trying to see a servant leader that I could not see the temptations of a servant leader. What I'm saying is the room is full of people right now who are leaders, servant leaders, and you've done a lot of people a lot of good. You've given tons of money away and you've elevated people so their lives are way better than they were before. But every good act does not come without its temptations. And so I sat down again to read John chapter 13 and I identified a couple of temptations that I constantly fall prey to. Let me list them. The first is the temptation to serve my friends, but not my enemies. Whenever I serve only the people that I think deserve to be served, whenever I calculate who will notice and who will be grateful and who will pay it forward before I serve them. My actions look like the actions of Jesus, but my heart is not in the right place. For in that last meal, John reminds us that the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He was therefore at the table. That's in verse 2. Later in verse 5, or we learn that Jesus even knew that it was Judas who was doing it. And in spite of this knowledge, his betrayer is at the table. He gets up and he gets in behind Judas' feet and he starts washing the feet of the person who will betray him. That's a line I almost never cross. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm afraid. I think that if I serve my enemies, it will only empower them. It will only convince them that they are right and they will feel superior and my enemies will start to take advantage of me. <laughs> But as Richard Foster points out, if I decide in my heart to let people take advantage of me, I can never be manipulated again.
but I have to decide to serve knowing that that could happen. Whenever I serve, only people I think will be grateful, use it, pay it forward. I start to see my own tendency to control, to manage, self-image, power, dignity. And I forget that it is precisely letting go of my self-image, my power, my control, and my dignity, that is what makes the act a service. Serving others is a mindset. It's not an act. Whenever I use it to get people to do something I want them to do, that's not service, that's manipulation. That's control. Sanctified, to be sure. But it's control. To serve is to do something for another person, not for what is in them, because they deserve it, but for what is in you. It is my nature to do this. I read the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and they crush me. He said, your Father in heaven causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous if you only love people who love you. How is that any different from what tax collectors do? And if you only greet people who greet you, how is that different from what pagans already do? And it occurs to me that uh, the reason to serve Judas um, is, is not because you want to impress him or because you're trying to change him or because he deserves it. The reason you serve Judas is because you are not Judas. You have a different spirit in you. You are possessed by a different man. That's why you love him. Now I know, I know, because it always happens. I say things like this, and some people in the room right now are dialing up personal situations thinking, well, that's a great speech. My situation's a little complex. And look, people, I cannot change the text. I didn't write the Sermon on the Mount or I'd edit it for you, but I can't. It says what it says. So however complex the situation is, the thing you must remember is this. At the end of the day, you have to be able to do something tax collectors and pagans 
cannot do. You must have a righteousness, not just a belief system. Not just a belief system. You must have an actual way about you that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you cannot get into the kingdom. Man, I didn't say that. I just quoted it. If you do not wash your betrayer's feet, how will you ever overcome evil with good? How will you carry his transgressions? And by whose stripes is he supposed to be healed? if not yours. All right, I'm moving on. Are you still there? I'll go faster now. The second temptation that I struggle with in reading this servant leadership mantra is I am tempted to serve without becoming a servant. When I serve people, I am still in charge. But when I become a servant, I am not in charge. When I serve people, I temporarily step out of my position to perform a menial task. But when I am a servant, I am the menial task. There is nothing below me. And so the text says in the middle of the meal, while the others were still eating, Jesus got up and he disrobed himself of his outer garment, of his identity, power. I miss that. And then he wrapped a towel around his waist like only slaves did that. And then he went around back of the men while they were seated at the table and they sat at the table leaning forward with their legs out like this. And he came around behind them and he started to wash their feet, and he did not do what they do on Maundy Thursday, gently pour the water over the feet. Because the feet were dirty, the disciples would have been walking the roads of Palestine, which were full of garbage and dung. And so when anyone washed their feet, they scrubbed them, and they scrubbed in between their toes in order to get out the garbage and the dung. This wasn't a gentle pouring some ceremonial act to say, well, here, let's give this to the church. This was Jesus taking care of the needs of people who failed to take care of their own before they started to eat. And it is in that humility, I start to see another one of my great flaws. I've been taught as a pastor that I must learn to have Boundaries. Every psychologist in the room will tell me to have boundaries. Explain that. 
thank God he didn't have my boundaries. I need boundaries, they say, because after I've served other people, there is something of a life that I have to come back to. I have other things I have to manage those two. And by creating boundaries around my time, around my structure, around my agenda, the stuff that you people expect from me, I create for myself the space to do what I need to do. And therein lies the difference between one who serves and one who is a servant. Don't misunderstand me. The one who is a servant also has boundaries, but they're not probably your boundaries. The boundaries you came in with today protect you from losing the life that you love, that you've become familiar with, that you need to produce what you want to produce. But the boundaries of a servant are those that protect the other person. Not you. Remember, you're a servant. Third, last temptation. I am tempted to serve without being served. The first time I uh, was involved in a foot washing ceremony, I called for it. Never done it before. So I, there wasn't Google. What's a guy to do? He's got to go read some book by some high church. People who do this. I called a meeting with the board. We went on a retreat. And I said, I'd like to close this by having a foot washing ceremony. I delivered a pretty weak lecture on John chapter 13. Then I got up from the table and I poured water into a basin. And I said, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna wash the person's feet next to me and when I'm through, that person will wash the person's feet next to them. That's exactly what we did. I got down and I washed that person's feet. And when I did this, people, I understood for the first time the beauty in this ceremony. It was a powerful moment. And when I was through, I sat back up and I sat in my chair and the person whose feet I just washed got up from them. They went down one person and they took the sock off the other person. They started to wash that person's feet. They didn't scrub between the toes. Thank heavens, I'd have had to leave. But this went on for about 12 or 13 different cases when all of a sudden it had an awkward ending. The last person to get their feet washed decided they would be Jesus. And they got up and came to the front and started to wash my feet. They said, Pastor, would you remove your shoes? That was when I remembered what Peter said. No, 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 it's all right. Pastors are servants. Pastor, I need to wash your feet. I took off the shoes and then my sock and then the person started washing my feet. And that was when I learned for the first time 
that if you think it's hard to wash other people's feet, you should try having other people wash yours. Because you see, in a day when servant leader is the mantra, I actually improve my reputation by coming down and washing another person's feet. There's power in that. The hard thing is sitting up and letting other people wash yours. When I'm washing your feet, I feel dignity, resourcefulness. I feel honor. But when I sit there and let you wash mine, I feel vulnerable and weak, needy, ashamed. So it's uh, no surprise that Peter said, you will never wash my feet. I think there's two reasons. One of them was because Jesus, that is below you. That is what slaves do. And the other reason is, well, because Jesus, that is below me. Every time in the Bible when someone's feet are washed, it is always the person himself who washes his own feet. I can't find an instance in the Bible where somebody washed another person's feet. It was always wash your own. So why would I sit here and let you do for me what I can do for myself? Well, because sometimes to be a servant is to wash other people's feet. And sometimes the best thing a servant can do is to let others wash yours. Can I challenge you to go back to your groups in the conversations that you have with one another and, uh, and say to your group, this is why I need you. You may not have had that conversation in a long time, but can you just say across the table, when you do this for me, I need it and I value it and I cannot do that for myself. When you exercise those gifts, when you carry my weight, you guys saved my life. I needed you. Henry Nowen was a priest. He was well known in the academic world. He, uh, he taught at Harvard, he taught at Yale, he taught at Notre Dame. What's not to like about that? But when he met Jean Vanier later in his career, Vanier looked right into his soul and he noticed there was an emptiness. Vanier had started some time ago a little community, a one another community, um, called it a large, had different places where they lived together. And he said to Henry in that conversation, who knows, maybe there's a home for you in one, one of our communities. People, get the irony of this. Notre Dame, Harvard, Yale. Maybe there's a community for you inside of a larsh. But the bigger the hole got in Henry's soul, 
the more he knew he needed to do something. And so in 1986, he left his teaching profession in those universities and moved to a little community outside of Toronto where they cared for the mentally challenged. Now in rights, when people have little intellectual capacity, they let their hearts, their loving hearts, their angry hearts, their longing hearts speak directly and often unadorned. Without realizing it, the people I came to live with made me aware of the extent to which my leadership was still a desire to control complex situations and confused emotions and anxious minds. It took me a long time to feel safe inside of an unpredictable climate, but I am getting in touch with the mystery that leadership for a large part means to be led. I discover that I am learning many new things, not just about pains and struggles and wounded people, but about joy, peace, love, care, prayer. I never could have learned these in the academy. They also taught me what nobody else could have taught me, that grief and violence, fear and indifference, most of all, they give me a glimpse of God's first love, often at moments when I start feeling depressed. So at the end of his little book, uh, In the Name of Jesus, now when tells of a speech that he had to give in Washington, D.C., by then a pretty established writer, well-known in academic circles, they called him into Washington, D.C. to speak to a ballroom packed with ministers and priests. He decided that he would take Bill Van Buren, one of the patients or one of the, his friends from the Alarsh community, he would take him on the plane. He said they flew us into D.C. They put us inside of the Clarendon Hotel, sitting on the Potomac River. And we were each given our own spacious rooms and double beds and bathrooms and cable TV. <laughs> there was a basket of fruit on our desks and there was wine. And he said Bill loved it. He was a veteran TV watcher. He settled comfortably onto a queen-size bed, checked out all the channels. Later that night, they came to get him from the room, and they took him to a delicious dinner in the ballroom. And when that was over, Vincent Dwyer introduced me to the audience. And at that moment, he said, I had no idea what Bill was going to do. He said, I took my handwritten notes and I started my speech. And at that moment, I noticed that Bill had stood up and left his seat and he'd walked onto the platform and planted himself right behind me. It was clear that he had another idea in mind. Each time I finished reading a page, he took the page away and sat it on the table next to me. He said, I started to feel very much at ease with Bill. I started to feel that his presence was a support, but Bill had still something more in mind. When I started to speak about the temptation to turn stones into bread, Bill interrupted me and said loudly, I've heard that before. He wanted the priests and the ministers to know that he knew me and was familiar with my ideas. He said, Bill's presence started to loosen the atmosphere. These stiff wooden priests 
And ministers started to pause. They started to smile. The mood became light and easy and more playful. When I got to my second point, I said the question most asked by handicapped people with whom I live is, are you home tonight? And Bill interrupted me again and said, that's right. That is what John Smelzer always asks. But it was as if he was drawing the audience toward us, not scaring them off, inviting them into the intimacy of our common life. And so I finished my speech. And as I turned to leave, Bill turned to me and said, Henry, may I say something now? My first reaction was, oh, no. How am I going to handle this? He's going to start rambling about some embarrassing situation. But he said, I caught myself in my presumption that he had nothing of importance to say. And so I turned to the audience and I said, would you please sit down? Bill would like to say a few words. Bill took the microphone and with all of the difficulties that he has in speaking, he said, last time when Henry went to Boston, he took John Smeltzer with him. This time, he wanted me to come with him to Washington. And I am very glad to be here with you tonight. Thank you very much. And he walked off. That was it. Everyone stood up and gave a warm applause. As we walked away from the podium, he says, Bill turned to me and said, Henry, how did you like my speech? Very much, I said. Everyone was really happy with what you said. We gathered for drinks that night, now and said, he's not Westland. And he said, <laughs> Bill went from table to table to table to table with his drinks in his hand, introducing himself again to every one of the priests, telling stories from our community. Back in Toronto, the following morning, we got on the plane to fly home. Bill sat next to me, and in the middle of doing one of his word puzzle books, he lifted his head again and said, Henry, how did you like our trip? I said, I liked it very much. It was a wonderful trip. I'm so glad you came. Bill looked at me and said attentively, and we did it together, didn't we? Then I realized the full truth of Jesus' words, where two or three meet in my name. I am among them. In the past, he said, I've imagined all of my lectures, addresses, and speeches would be soon forgotten, but now it dawned on me that while most of what I said would be forgotten, what would be hard to forget is that we did it together. Some of you this morning are powerful people. You are smart, powerful, talented, and rich. Always the ones delivering the speech. But while you're always serving you sometimes are not allowing somebody else 
who doesn't feel so smart, talented, powerful, or rich to get up and do something. thought occurred to me as I studied this week that leading and following in the kingdom of God are not positions, they are acts. And you're never in one for long. Then you must move over and get in the other. Now, some of you this morning are really having the time that I had. I'm sorry for anything I've uh, put upon you that maybe you weren't ready for. Maybe you're thinking right now, Steve, you lost me at number one. I have enemies that I cannot serve. They'll take advantage of me. Some of you say, no, I, I think my problem is I'm good at serving but maybe I'm not fully a servant. I'm still too much in control. Maybe some of you are saying, no, I'm really good at helping other people. I just don't like to let other people help me. Can I give you a vision? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself to have no reputation and to take upon himself the form of a servant and to become obedient unto death Yes, even death on a cross. Therefore, while he was doing this, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is servant Lord to the glory of God the Father.